0: So, what is it about the Haftarah and the Torah reading that can provide us with a sense of comfort? Who wants to be Nachshon ben Aminadav? Jerome? Right, so there's an opportunity in the fact that we're still reading Torah. And we have the haftarah that the covenant is not irreparably damaged. We can return to God. We can do tshuva. We can accept God. And if, as long as we keep our part of it, God will return us and maintain that covenant into the future. Good. Other thoughts. I I didn't hear you. so what about that, though, gives you comfort? The faith, right? So even though it's difficult to fully know God, we still maintain our, our love of God, right? We have Shema Hafta. There's still this sense of love, and we know that in loving relationships, sometimes we get annoyed. Sometimes loving relationships are hard, and yet... We have faith as a result of that love that will manage to work through it. Okay. Other thoughts? Yes, Gary. you coach And Coach, what do you think about that? Doesn't always work. work. <laughs> <laughs> May uh, what? Gary, what Gary's pointing out is, is that there seems to be a plan, right? There seems to be a plan. If you do this, then it'll work. Um, and the mitzvot ultimately, I think, function as that plan, right? The mitzvot are a system for living a life that matters. And in particular for the Bible, the first temple, it was all about idolatry. The the prophets, the you read the prophets, The the cardinal sin for Jews is infidelity to God through idolatry. And in the second temple, it's sinat chinam, it's senseless hatred against each other. Um, But we have a plan, we have a system that if we take it seriously, if we go through the mitzvot, not just by rote, but by understanding the kavanah and the meaning, it will hopefully help us create what I call habits of holiness and allow us to live a life by which these things won't happen. Good. Maybe a couple more. Yes, Miriam. Right. so certainly for the Torah and for the Haftarah, even though we were unfaithful, even though we were exiled from our land, um, as I said uh, previously uh, from the first comment, who Jerome's comment, that um, the Brit, the covenant, is not completely damaged. God still has our back as long as we return to God. All right, um, c- certainly, I'm sorry? There, there, I what's the difference? Yes. Uh, I'm not so sure that that's fully the case. I think that in the ancient world, um, in the, but in the ancient world, Covenants were um, more. There were covenants between people and people, but there were also covenants between between God and the people. Um, if you look at the the Hurabi um, code, for example, um, and you compare that to the Ten Commandments, yeah, the the king was God in that system, but the but the brought. If you if you compare it to that, there's a lot of similarities we can learn from it. Um, I, I want to. Uh, so we have, we have the ongoing breed of Torah. We have the Aseret Hatibrot still apply. We have Shema via that we recite morning and night um, in order, uh, as Gary said, to help create the system, this plan of helping us learn to be faithful to God. Um, and we have this Haftarah uh, that, uh, this Haftarah. That is very interesting in the way in which it begins. And as my friend Avi Meir pointed out, and he's now the editor in chief of the Jerusalem Post, uh, but he, it was a, I shared it on the week, end, week's end e news that came out um, yesterday afternoon. Um, he shares, um, I think, some excellent Torah, which is worth repeating uh, this morning. Um, the opening of the words of the Haftarah are Nachamu Nachamu Ami which are typically translated even in our chumash as be comforted, be comforted, my people, suggesting that it's God who is, in whose name these words are being said and who is consoling, it's God that is comforting God's people, Israel, after the destruction of the temple. But the word nachamu, is a plural imperative, so the grammar of that word doesn't make sense with that translation. It is a command that seems to be directed towards more than just one recipient, in which case a more accurate reading of the text would be, "Nachamu, nachamu, ami, comfort, oh, comfort my people." And in that reading, the identity of the recipient is a little bit more vague. It's not clear who, should it, who was direct to. Um, in addition, as Avi Meyer points out, there's a chronological problem with the haftarah of reading it in the way in which we commonly understand it. And that is, is that the first temple was destroyed in 587 BCE. Long after Isaiah's death, how could Isaiah then be offering consolation for something that happened so many years after he walked this earth? Now, of course, commentators have all sorts of, of uh, explanations, not least of which is we're talking about prophecy. <laughs> so if you're talking about prophecy, it doesn't matter when it happens. It doesn't matter when it gets fulfilled, whether it's tomorrow, next week, next year, or 300 years later. Prophecy is prophecy. Uh, Rabbi um, Avraham Ibn Ezra, who's one of the preeminent scholars of Spain, um, agrees that the text may be directed at the prophet. But he offers an alternative reading. He writes that God addresses his prophet or the chiefs of the people. So he expands the recipients to not only be the prophet, but also the leaders of the community. And that's how he resolves that, that problem. But it's curious in that um, for Isaiah, the leaders at that time were corrupt. And if they were corrupt, then how are these leaders going to provide comfort? which I I suppose, Elaine, is the conversation that we were having during the Haftarah, right? I I pointed out that um, just yesterday, uh, four members of Likud publicly announced that they were not going to support any more judicial reform without compromise, that they seem to have finally have gotten the message that more than just the substance of the debate, the process of the debate, the divisive nature of the debate in Israel, is not sustainable and cannot stand. Um, Of course, Elaine's response, the correct one is, where were they before? (laughs) Right? Why now? Um, And and you could say the same thing that after the debate, and in the eve and in the days after Tisha B'Av, You heard Prime Minister Netanyahu be a little bit more conciliatory. um, And you heard leaders of the opposition being a little bit more conciliatory too. Um, Perhaps the lesson is that it's never too late. It's still not yet too late. And maybe the coming of Tisha B'Av, which didn't seem to impact them on the fact that it was on the horizon, but, but maybe the break of having this holiday, reading the commentaries and the, the text itself, thinking about the impact and the meaning, I mean, that's an amazing thing for me. Right? You want to talk about Jewish Israel as is a Jewish and democratic state? Uh, everything that I've been reading in this last week has been framed around Tisha B'Av. It's been framed around Tisha B'Av. The, the metaphor that we use to describe the danger of the divisiveness is framed around a Jewish commemoration, around Jewish history, around Jewish belief. Um, a fox was cited in the egalitarian section of the temple on Now, why is this significant? Because according to the Talmud, Rabbi Akiva saw and his and, and other rabbis were walking through the ruins of the of the temple the Beit Maccabees and they saw a fox and Rabbi Akiva's colleagues started to wail because the fox was the prophecy of of Uriah who said that the temple would be destroyed and and foxes would roam around the top of it and said Rabbi Akiva if Oriah's prophecy is true, then so must be Zechariah's prophecy, which prophesies about a coming redemption and the rebuilding of the temple. You can't just say that a, a negative prophecy is true without also understanding that a positive prophecy is true. Now, Eli and I were joking about this last night a little bit about omens. Um, I don't actually believe in omens. But the fact that a fox was seen at the temple, at uh, the Robinson's Arch anyway, roaming amongst the destruction of the temple from years ago, the fact that this divisiveness is happening around Tisha Ba'av, the fact that there's a pause and people are catching a breath and finally four members of Likud, um, David Batbitan, Yuli Edelstein, um, Gallant uh, and others are saying no more without broad consensus and the proof is still going to be in the pudding. Proof is still going to be what happens when the Knesset comes back and some of these other bills that are much more serious than the reasonableness ban come forward. The fact that at least at the moment Tisha Baav seems to have hit the pause button, that gives me hope for the future. Gives me hope for the future. And if I take the really long view of Jewish history, the fact that we're here, able to have this conversation about the impact of Tisha B'Av centered around a modern state of Israel, that that also gives me hope. It's too early to write and to read the obituary of the state of Israel and the Jewish people. There are too many voices that are still going to the streets, now 30 weeks in a row, activated for Jewish values and for the protection of the state. And God willing, the leaders will have learned a lesson, all the leaders, not just the government leaders, but also the opposition. God willing, everybody who's in a position of power and influence has learned a lesson, and will take this time before the next Knesset meets to do the very, very hard work to ensure that we can pull ourselves back from the brink. And Tisha B'Av will remain a commemorative holiday, not an actual one can he write be maybe so